Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. With the advent of the show The Golden Bachelor, dating and singledom during one's later years is the talk of the town. Let's dive into a conversation about dating as a senior. franchise finally broke out of the mold of having only young people on the show and launched the first ever season of The Golden Bachelor. Conversations in the press have followed, including this week an article in the New York Times entitled Dating After 60, A Lot of Roses, Some Thorns, which as the name suggests, describes the joys and sorrows of dating for the older set. Michelle, let's dive in. What do you think are some of the complexities of dating for that age group to the extent you've discussed this with your patients or other therapists? So I don't work with a lot of clients who are 60 and older and also single. I don't have much experience to talk about from the client uh, vantage point, but I do belong to some groups of people who are dating at different ages. And I have seen, maybe even if not people in that age range speaking as much, people who are approaching that age range who are very nervous about the idea of what dating might look like later on in life, like in your 60s and beyond. And I have worked with some couples who are approaching that age range and and like a couple or so who are in that age range over the years where... So for couples approaching that age range, it might be their children are leaving the house and now they are like, okay, empty nest, it's the two of us. Do we still have things in common? And sometimes couples are able to negotiate that, but other times they realize they really don't have very much in common. So you do sometimes find people becoming single later in life because they realize our kids were kind of what held the marriage together. Like most uh, recently in the news, we see Hugh Jackman and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness, who have been married for nearly 30 years, but their youngest child just turned 18 and they're getting a divorce. I don't know the reasons, obviously, but you know, it, it's not uncommon for people to reevaluate the state of their relationship and sometimes end up not together when when their children leave the house or, you know, especially the older we get, if you are dealing with the loss of a spouse, that might be a reason people go back into the dating game. And then there are some people who have been single the whole time and are still single in their 60s. And so I know I have some background information to understand some of the issues that come up there. I would say the biggest fear and concern that people have is that the dating pool must be so small at that point. Like, who is going to be around and of the people who are around are they single because no one wants to be with them because they're just terrible partners and and those are definitely fears people have about they're just being slim pickings and of those not very good choices but actually it was refreshing to read some of the articles we read this week like the new york times piece you mentioned that really highlighted how that might be One way of looking at the situation is there's less people around, but another way of looking at it is, well, there's less to sift through and and more ability to just kind of 
not waste your time on people, but rather see who might be the best suited for you. So I love that the article talks about some strengths. I know we can get into that. I think the biggest fears have been about a decreased dating pool. And also I would imagine too, maybe some restrictions, like if it's different than when you are in your 20s and maybe you haven't started a family yet, maybe you don't have roots in a certain area that keep you there, but maybe in your 60s, I mean, it's, I'm sure it varies from person to person. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but some people want to live by their own adult children or their grandchildren. They're not going to move or um, they're just kind of set where they are. And so that might limit their dating pool. So those are some of the some of the concerns I've heard, but definitely by and large, it's the fear of slim pickings. Yeah. I mean, talking about those slim pickings, especially thinking about the fact that men die earlier than women on average. And I mean, you, at least the stereotype has always been that, you know, at the nursing home, like the man in his seventies or eighties has like all of these women flocking around him, right? Because they're just not that many men to, to go around anymore. And I'm also wondering to what extent do you think that that population is going to have like maybe the expectations that men have and that women have are not necessarily going to be in sync anymore. So maybe while some of the women were single for a while and like built up their whole independent lives and uh, also didn't have to take care of someone anymore. And now they meet this guy who maybe had an ex-wife or uh, something like that, where that was always taking care of him. So like he expects that that's just kind of how it's going to be again. And so he expects like an automatic wife, I guess, instead of like a, a girlfriend. And even within, of course, the automatic wife paradigm, like today, people like you and I don't necessarily expect that the wife is going to have to do everything like back in the old days. So to what extent do you think that there's going to be a bit of that? I would imagine there would be. I mean, I, I would think there's probably some variability there. Just some people are more entrenched in those old school gender roles than others. But, you know, those gender roles definitely did exist more back when these people who are in their 60s and and older now were were younger and maybe first entering the dating world. So so yeah, I, I would imagine it comes up some. I don't know to what extent I think that's something it's reasonable to be concerned about that that that's an expectation some an older man might have because it was definitely a more prevalent attitude back when they were coming up. I got I have to ask you about the thing that I was grumbling to you about earlier this week, which is that I was listening to a different podcast that had some dating coaches on that specialized actually in senior citizens. And it was, it was a couple, wife and husband, and the wife actually said that, you know, the, the too many women show up and act like they're on a job interview this is you know this is how they put it if i recall uh and that for example when a man asks you what do you do instead of saying i'm a litigator at a major new york law firm you should say when i'm not busy with my day job i like to bake cookies for my grandchildren that is and wild I, 
I just about lost it. So I need your reaction to basically this, like, should women, and this is a question not just for the senior set. I think it's actually a broader question, but maybe more relevant there. Should women soften their persona to make it more palatable and less yeah. job interviewee? <laughs> Well, I would say, you know, I'm not an expert in that area. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting that that's what the experts would say. And I'm also going to ask you a follow-up question of like, what was their rationale for that? Because to me, that that's crazy to me to that they would encourage focusing only on like the homemaker around the house qualities instead of whatever the genuine answer is as to how you would genuinely and organically describe what your life is like that, you know, I think how people choose to organically answer that question really tells you more about them and their values. And so to answer it in any kind of constructed way feels inauthentic. And I can't see how that would be good for dating. So I'm just really surprised by that. I mean, my inclination would be to disagree with that advice just because a common theme that that really drives a lot of what happens in therapy is helping people to be more authentic, not less so. So so I, I am really put off by that advice. Did they give a rationale for why that's the right answer? This was the rationale. The rationale was that a lot of women today come across as too aggressive and independent and not vulnerable enough. And while I could get on board with the, it's good to be vulnerable in some ways, right? With boundaries, of course, in early dates. But while, while I could get on board with that, the way they then interpreted it was the way that I just presented to you, which is like basically, because basically they said men often walk away from dates being like, yeah, this person seems great. I would absolutely hire them if there was a job, but not as my spouse, because they're looking for something a little softer. And I mean, come on, let's just say it's more feminine. Weird, like cookies. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, look, this goes back to, for me, men mm. who on dating apps are looking for a woman that's sweet. I mean, it really is that. care of them. Like, it's so gross to me. I mean, I guess different strokes for different folks. But anytime I see dating app profiles where it's like, I want you to cook for me, clean for me. It's like, what can you do for me? And I just find that to be wild that that's how some people present themselves and that other people find that to be attractive. So, so yeah, to the extent that you're supposed to be selling yourself as a desirable partner, like, I guess, in terms of indicating what do I bring to the table that you would benefit from? Okay, yeah, I guess you want to be attentive that it's understandable that somebody might want to know the answer to that, but you would hope that somebody would, would think I would benefit from a partner who has interesting things to talk about, who has interests of their own. Um, not just that bakes and loves, you know, taking care of grandkids or whatever it might be. So that's really disappointing. And even in the New York times article, you mentioned, I'm, I was quickly looking through, there was a quote that I think really speaks to, to what I was saying, which is, this is an older man in the article who's, who's dating after his marriage of 25 years ended. And he said, one thing I quickly discovered is, wow, you really don't have to play any games at this point in life. 
I don't have to tell any story that's not true about me and neither do they. And he found that to be a refreshing thing. And I would, I would imagine that would be the case too. And I also wouldn't be surprised if people who are older would resonate with that and, and feel like they're too old for game playing. They'd rather just get to the point. They, they don't want to waste their time or try to trick somebody into thinking they're someone they're not because they understand people are going to figure that out eventually. And then it, w- it truly would be wasted time if once the person knows who you really are, they aren't interested in you anymore. So why not just present it from the get-go? I think a benefit to dating at that age is a lot more people are more comfortable in their own skin by the time they are 60 or beyond than before. And it it means there's less, less pull to cover for your insecurities, I would imagine, on average. So I don't know. That, that advice is disappointing. Um, and I think based on things like what we're hearing anecdotally from people who are in that dating pool in this article, we're seeing that advice would not fit with, with what matters to them. David in the article says, no, I want somebody who's going to be authentic to tell me what they're really about. What else stood out to you? What are some things that stood out to you from well, this article? You know, here, but here we have a problem, which is the difference, right, between people's kind of self-reporting mm-hmm. and revealed preferences. And you have, of course, so many men that will say, oh, I'm looking for authenticity and I'm looking for this and that. <laughs> yeah. When, when it actually, it's like that study that always gets on my nerves, the one where like men claim they would be happy dating someone smarter than themselves, but then when they actually get to choose, they don't choose that way. So I'm, I'm always a little, I guess, skeptical of necessarily just going by, you know, by some yeah, of the self-report. Yeah, self-report. And, and, you know, I mean, I think it also actually reminds me of some of the advice columns for like, people who want to like women who want to land wealthy men, because you're right, like, it, it becomes a problem if they reveal their true selves. But that's why they can never reveal their true selves. Like they're going to have to act this this part and and look to some people, not you and I, but to some people, it's worth it to them. Because like having a certain kind of life is, and, and certainly with certain types of ease and privilege is more important to them than being able to be themselves, right? So, I mean, another question that I have is, what about this concern that you're taking on somebody with a lifetime of baggage, right? So it's like, this person has been with a spouse or several partners or whatever for dozens of years, and now they're gonna have all these triggers and all this history, and they're gonna be very inflexible. Uh, Do you think there's something to that? I mean, I think there could be, I think, but so are you if you're assuming that the two people are in the same age range. They and you might have 60 plus years worth of of potential baggage. But, you know, one way to look at it is, yeah, what kind of baggage, what kind of unresolved experiences do they bring to the situation that they're going to harp on or that are going to continue to cause problems? But another way to look at it is what kind of adversities have they faced in life that they've figured out how to overcome and what skills and abilities have they learned from it? Just because people have been through some things doesn't mean that they're inflexible and stuck. I actually think that's a good way to to gather more data about because by the time you're 60 or so, you probably have been through some kind of adverse experience. So maybe we learn what you learn from that? Did you learn how to persevere and overcome and and problem solve uh, or or not? Are you ruminating? Are you stuck on things? So the extent to which somebody is more saddled down by baggage versus they've gone through some things, but 
they figured out how to adapt, be resilient, move on is totally going to vary person by person. I, so I think you don't have any more of a risk of of somebody being saddled down by baggage. The truth is some people in their 20s have some kind of baggage they haven't figured out how to work through and they ruminate on that all of the time. I think it's less about the amount of adverse circumstances you've been through and more about the coping skills and abilities you've developed along the way. So an upside there is you've had more time to develop those skills and abilities. And if you haven't, then maybe that is a warning sign that you might be more set in your ways, less likely to be able to now adapt or get past it. If you haven't figured it out in 60 or 70 years, mm, I don't know. I might be a little more cautious about thinking you'd be able to figure it out in your 71st year. I think that's all so true. And, you know, I mean, even things like the ability to live with someone, right? Like some people are going to be really bad at that in their 20s and like 20, 30, 40 years later, they're much better at it. So I totally agree that there's so much learning that goes on and that one can't generalize in that area. I mean, one thing I do want to mention certainly is that for some older people sort of dealing with all these newfangled technologies, like with apps, with websites can be difficult. There's also the concern about scams that a number of senior, senior citizens are not necessarily more likely to end up being scammed, but they tend to be scammed out of larger amounts. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely a, a concern and something where, yeah, I think it's important for there to be guides out there specifically for that age group about things to watch out for. And, and you know, I'm always, and you and I agree on this, we're always talking about community. And I, I think it's so important for people to find each other who might all be in that age set and are dating and can exchange experiences and can learn so much. I mean, I feel like I've learned so much from other people and from what they've been through. And it's sometimes it just blows my mind how savvy some people are. Like, I'd like to think you and I are quite savvy at this point, but sometimes someone will say something where you're like, wow, I had not thought of that. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I learned something new, like someone in like a like a dating group of some sort online yeah. or, you know, all of these things that they're doing. And I have to say more generally, especially this year, like, I feel like I'm learning so much from young, younger people, mm -hmm. like, and from people in their twenties and like, even sort of things about like how to negotiate certain kinds of things or, you know, like, I'm just really grateful for like even some of my like 20 some year old neighbors, you know, like people are always like, I'm going to have the young neighbor that's going to be annoying and blah, blah, blah. Like I have a young neighbor who's totally lovely and like, not just one, like I'm thinking about the one next door, but there are others in the building who are like super nice and, and people have really built a community here and are helping each other out. So I think a lot of that is much more in flux than it used to be. But let me ask you about how do, should people deal with physical limitations? We've talked a little bit with Kat McFarlane about dating with a disability, but, but thinking about old age specifically, I mean, some of these things were mentioned in New York Times piece or elsewhere. One, this concern about becoming a caretaker, which is why there have been, I mean, there have been a number of pieces, including in the British press, about women who are like, eh, I don't want to get married again because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lose that independence. I don't want to take care of an older man. Issues with sexual dysfunction, sort of physical barriers to going on the same kinds of adventures that you might have gone on when you were younger. Do you have any thoughts about like the best ways to cope with that or, or maybe laugh about some of it if, if need be? Yeah, you know, I don't have a ton of basis of, of knowledge to speak about those things, but I think it's reasonable to, to think about dating at this age will will there be these sorts of limitations and how do I feel about that? And making informed decisions 
with the given person you are you are dating or considering dating about how well their physical abilities and their lifestyle aligns with yours and and also like you know what things they what things they prioritize and want to do so i think just as the same as with any other age it's going to be about making sure that you're compatible with the other person that you guys align as far as what is important to you um physically and and so for example if you know if you're really averse to the idea of caretaking for someone um then i think it would be really important to factor that into if there's any obvious signs that they may need that or if they're like significantly older than you understanding they're going to need that caretaking ability most likely you know, sooner than you would. It's not like the two of you are going to go into it together if if you're significant years apart in age. What else was I thinking there with physical limitations? Here's some other thought I had. I don't know. I'll come back. I think oh, I was back to you. Yeah. Another thing I am thinking about with that, which actually the New York Times article was reassuring about in some ways, was talking about uh, sexual performance in later in life. And, you know, it was really refreshing that they, that some people in the article had essentially talked about the idea that their sex life is better in their sixties. And I think that makes a ton of sense, honestly, because I think the older you get, the more secure you become and more comfortable you become with what works for me, what I like and what I am willing to do, what I'm not willing to do. And I think you become more comfortable on average communicating those sort of things. And I think sex, a good sex life is really about being able to know yourself, know what you like, communicate that and be able to be attentive to the other person where you're looking for signs of what they like and, and, can recognize those signs and respond to those. And I would imagine that those are skills that get better with time. So it totally doesn't shock me that people in their 60s are having some of the best sex of their lives. That, that makes sense to me. I think, as you said, like sexual dysfunction of some of those kind of issues might be more prevalent as you get older, but they don't, they don't affect everybody. And so I would imagine there too, it's just important to be going to the doctors, communicating about any, any dysfunction that's that's coming up, being able to look into technology is amazing with what kind of medications there are that might help with some of those things. But but yeah, I mean, on the other hand, some people are having better sex later in life than they were earlier. And I'm thrilled about that for them. Well, and let's just say it for a lot of women, the fact that the fear of pregnancy is gone yeah. uh, is a huge relief. I think there's for a lot of women, there's always that little fear in the back of their mind, even if they're responsibly using birth control like and everything like oh might it fail might there be an oopsie like what am i gonna do if so and just like not i mean really being able to focus on sex as sex <laughs> nothing else like that's gotta be pretty nice you know i think there are other aspects that are a bit different right at that age i mean look in some sense like any of us could die tomorrow but of course uh, the older you get like the the more likely it is that you might get some disease or a heart attack or something might happen. And there's just uncertainty about how much time that you have together and like, you know, not to wax poetic too much, but I do think for some people that does turn into an attitude of, you know what, then let's make every day count, right? Like they turn that into not just a negative, but also something that has positive aspects of we're really just going to enjoy ourselves. And yeah, we might not have 20, 30 years together, but we're going to we're going to enjoy what we do have. Now, one thing that I do think comes up also is, 
some legal stuff. I mean, what I mean by that is concerns about things like inheritance, mm -hmm. gold digging, possible hostility from kids. Like, I mean, look, some people are very, very clear, like they've written their wills and, and they made it very, very clear that like they can't, you know, that that can't be uh, shaken anymore. But you hear stories all the time. And it, it, by the way, it happened with a distant relative of mine that, you know, he was, I mean, he ended up living to 102 and he got remarried in his nineties to his nurse who was like in her forties or fifties. Mm -hmm. And then she ended up getting all of the inheritance. Ooh. And I mean, that story was extremely shady, of course, right? And especially with the age gap that was involved there, like, this is a lot of red flags. All this came out after he died. Like, nobody even knew he had gotten married. He lived in a different country from, like, other relatives. Like, it was just a perfect storm, right? So maybe it was especially dramatic there. But there were sort of less dramatic versions of that same story. And I mean... Do you have any advice from the therapist perspective for people on how to navigate that? And maybe even for the children, for the middle-aged children or whatever, like how should they approach like a new person that like their 80-year-old dad is now suddenly dating or whatever? Yeah. Um, well, you know, my first thought with that is, is honestly, I don't even know if it's like from a therapist perspective. I'm not sure. But I, <laughs> my first thought with that is I think a lot of it comes down to what people's values and also like what their assumptions are about what they're entitled to from somebody else's life and, and net worth and all of that. Like I, so as a therapist, if, if like the child of somebody, the adult child of somebody was to come to me and say, you know, I'm concerned that this person, my mom or dad is dating now that that, that person's just a gold digger. That person is going to like mess with our will situation or whatever. I don't know. My first reaction would be, do you feel entitled to the assets that your parents have built up. And if so, you know, like, what about that? What, what makes you feel as though those should be yours? Because sometimes the answer, because my parents and I had a conversation about that and they said that was their wishes. Um, but other times it might be really like a time for self-reflection about, am I, am I counting as mine their stuff? And are they not entitled to do what they want with their own life savings, with their own, assets with the life that they still have and even whatever decision they might make with what they want to do after death with with their assets. Now, I think it's one thing if you're concerned about and that there's evidence of cognitive decline, there you are wondering if my parent were to change their will, do we know that they're of sound mind when they're doing it? Exactly. And so I might throw this back to you as a lawyer about how determinations of sound <sighs> so mind hard. may be made. But I, I would say that would be a legitimate concern. If a client was concerned, I don't know that my parent is in sound mind and I worry that that would have an impact on their will or in any other decisions they're making about how they're spending their money now, things like that. I would say encourage them to get a cognitive evaluation done. And you know, you can talk to them about it's not to demonstrate that there's something wrong with you, it's to figure out where your cognitive functioning is right now. And um and so that would be a suggestion I'd make if they have any concerns like that. But otherwise, if it's just truly like an air of entitlement, that might be worth a client exploring to figure out why is it that I feel entitled to my parents' money or belongings? And, and they might, in exploring that in therapy, be able to get to some answers that help them feel less conflicted about it. I, it. It would totally depend on what their 
what exactly the nature of their concerns were. But I mean, I think as a therapist, that's what I'd say is explore what about this is bothering you. I would say, look for evidence to suggest that this is a person looking to take advantage of my elderly relative or and evidence to suggest that it's not. Just kind of see where the evidence leads you and don't look only in one direction. Be willing to look for evidence that this person really seems to enjoy my parents' company or my elderly relative's company, that my elderly relative enjoys their company, you know, as well as whatever you think their financial situation is. What about you, like, especially like from the legal perspective with the cognitive decline piece, how does that work as far as people who oh, modify a will? Okay, like, oh my God, I have like so much to say, not just on the legal side, but also I would say on the cultural side, because I think dude, there are some cultural differences we're dealing with there also with people's expectations that you were pointing out. Yeah. Well, okay, one, okay, let me highlight this first, because otherwise I'm gonna, I might forget, which is I think one of the trickiest situations is when one spouse died and maybe the child even didn't take what they were entitled to legally at the time, they left it with the surviving parent with the understanding and belief that when that parent dies, they would then receive everything. And and, and something of this style, by the way, it wasn't children, it was other relatives, but something of that sort happened in the story I told you in my that happened to my uh, distant relative where like the, the wife died first. She was actually much younger than the, than the husband, but died first. And then, you know, other relatives would have been entitled to money and didn't take it and were like, we'll take it when, when he dies. And then suddenly everything had changed. So, so that is tough. Legally, it's so hard. I mean, this, you know, you and I have talked this week a bit also again about involuntary commitment, anything having to do with these mental or cognitive evaluations is going to be really, really hard. There are some tools uh, that you can put in place in advance that make it much easier, let's say, for a child to, for example, take control of a parent's legal affairs, if that's something that they agree to in advance and that they agree to that the child would be able to do that if such and such and such happens. And there are all sorts of ways, you know, to, to structure these agreements. So once again, better to plan ahead, right, than to be sort of caught uh, in the midst of all this. And, and there are going to be, there are real fights over this. There are real fights over this after people die. There are, you know, and at that point it gets really hard to do the, the whatever post-mortem evaluation of where the person was cognitively and you're talking to witnesses and you're looking at whatever emails they wrote and how sane they sounded and all this stuff, right? It's really, really painful stuff. Uh, and really something that if you can avoid it, that would be better. So in that sense, you know, Sometimes it's better to allocate things during the lifetime, right? And, and just have clear arrangement. That way there are tax implications. That's why people sometimes don't do it because unless the inheritance is very large, usually in the United States, you don't really get taxed on it, right? And so people prefer to do that as opposed to if they make a gift during the lifetime, you can't make a very large gift without being taxed. And so the way that the legal system is structured kind of sets up this problem and I I do believe there are some changes, frankly, that could be made there if, if we could wave our magic wand. But th those are just some of the things to think about. Like, are there still ways to allocate stuff? Like, can you use a trust mechanism? I mean, there are, there are just different things you can do. What I was going to say about the the cultural piece is, is this. Like, I think in some cultures, the assumptions are going to be much stronger than in others. That like, yeah, of course, like the money that mom and dad made, like, 
that's going to go to the kids. Like, what do you mean? And, and there's also, there's a quid pro quo there in a sense, because the children are also expected to take care of their parents much more than in some other cultures. Right. And so I look, as you know, I come from like an Eastern European background originally, although I didn't live there very long. And like those, the families from that part of the world tends to be and stay oftentimes closer than, let's say, your average American family, right? And it's not a criticism of either side, right? But but it's just, you know, it's just something that happens, right? And, and you know, we could talk about a lot of other countries and, and cultures, etc., right? But there it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, we've been so close our entire lives, right? You, the parent, did so much for me. I, the child, did so much for you. And now you're going to pull the rug out from under me and change the arrangement. Like I would just imagine that that would be especially painful. But to go on to something less painful, I have to ask you about one other article, which is the Washington Post article that came out recently with the guy that got married for the first time at 93. And there was, listen, there was some real snarkiness, okay, about that article. What's up with that, right? Like, what would motivate somebody to, like, suddenly get... We've talked about people who might be widowed or divorced uh, at a later age, but what might motivate someone to get married that late in life? Like, that's it? That's when they met their soulmate and it never came up before? Is it some fear of death? Like, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I was very interested in this article when it came out because I felt like the vibe around it, the way it was presented was, isn't this sweet? Love at any age. And that is a sweet sentiment. But like you said, is that what's happening? You know, we really need to kind of ask, like, what did happen? Why at 93 is this guy suddenly so intent about getting married? And I was kind of concerned reading the article. The first quote from him in the article says, at 93, or at 92, it was a year prior, He said, I realized that I had no one to call and I was lonely. Mary was in the same situation. So I decided, why not ask her out? Like that was the standard is I was lonely. There was no one else around. A lot of my other friends had died off and stuff. I was content being a bachelor up until enough of my friends died off. And then I was like, wait, (laughs) I'm lonely. There's a person who's also lonely. Maybe we're a love match. It just felt like not the reasons you're rooting for, for people to get together. It was just, ah, oh I have a deficiency here. Let me just look to fill this in the most easy way possible is how it read. I mean, if you read the article more, there there were some parts from it that made it sound like they actually are both into this relationship. And I do, I do wish the best for them, but that was not a strong opening line about what is the motivation at 93 that makes you think differently. And I think it's reasonable to ask that question and and real important to know what the answer is. If that's the real answer, that's not a good answer. Yeah. I mean, he just, you know, I have to say like in this country, if you are a man with like average or close-ish to average looks by conventional standards and average or acceptably close to that by whoever standards average income or like thereabouts like or at least solid you know i find it hard to believe that you really 
could not find someone to marry for that long if you made a real effort, you know? Yeah. Like that's the thing. I mean, we know we talk about it a lot on this show. We talk about the imbalances in the dating pool. And look, like, the bar is pretty low for a lot of men who want to get married. And so it's like if you waited that long, you probably, you probably just didn't want to get married. Like you said, you had your friends. You had your, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just like, yeah, yeah it's going to make me suspicious of someone who wakes up and is like, and, and there, there's probably again an element of an element of wanting caretaking, uh, an element of thinking ninety three. I mean, how long am I still going to be standing? Right, like I might need help, and it's going to be sad, and there's no one here to help me. And wouldn't it be nice if someone you know was here to support me? So yeah, it's a bit sad. I mean, and, and you know, it ninety three is an extreme example, but we of course see the less extreme version of that with the many, 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 many men who marry between their mid forties and their early fifties and they marry women much younger than themselves and, you know, who are still of childbearing age. Right. And so it, it feels like a bit of a version of that. And you and I have talked about this on a different episode where we talked about how people who have been maybe single for a long time might not have the skills necessary that you would expect for someone that age. So this guy's never been married. You're going to be like, well, have you ever lived with a woman? If not, how is that going to go? Like, and so I, I would be worried. I would too. Like, I mean, who can say what I'll feel at 93 and what my, uh, (laughs) what my marital status will be. But I would imagine, I would like to think that if I were older and somebody, as I would like to think now that if somebody asked me out on a date and they had said, well, I've been single my whole life. I've, I've never been married, even like now in our 40s, um, but certainly, you know, if we're in our 80s or 90s, I'd be very interested in the reason for that. I really need to know the answer to that. And if I, and I'd be very worried for the things you said, like how could this person possibly know how to live with somebody to, to navigate not having things exactly your way all of the time. I would not be able to enter into that kind of relationship with any kind of confidence that that person knows how to play nice with others in a day-to-day, we're sharing the same space kind of way. That would that would be tough to overcome. And then if you were like, what made you interested in dating? And they said, well, I looked around and I was lonely. I mean, I would not date that person. So yeah, I mean, I think it is important for the people in their 60s and older who are dating to really be asking these kind of questions, to really kind of understand what is the motivation, what is the backstory as to how this person found themselves at this place right now. And like we said, if there has been adversity, hardships, what have they learned from that, if anything, and if they haven't, and if it seems like they're just stuck in recreating the same patterns, or if they're just looking for somebody to make their life easier, I would consider those to be red flags. And, and you know, less, I would feel less confident that those things would change at a later age if there's not been signs of change in those areas early on. You know, if you had to guess... We, we keep talking about the difficulties in living with someone. If you had to guess, what do you think tend to be the issues that come up the most often hmm. for people who have not lived with a wife, husband, maybe even roommate, and now all of a sudden they're living with someone 
what is it? Is it that they leave their socks on the floor all the time or like or they snore? Like what do you think are like going to be, or maybe you encounter some of that in when you do counseling, right? Like yeah. uh, when you counsel people, like what, what are the topics that make it like the, the things that people are just on each other's nerves every day about? Well, I, I would think my guess would be the hardest thing would be incompatibility on the division of household duties. That would, that would be my biggest guess. Now, with couples who I have worked with who are older and empty nesters and, and struggling with that, something else I've seen is when they realize that how they like to spend their time is not only, well, I guess this is still incompatible, but it's like kind of exact opposite of each other. Like if one person wants a lot of quiet and the other wants a lot of activity, one person wants to be always going out and doing things and the other wants to stay at home. Things like that can, if they, if at prior stages in lives, they had stuff to fill the time. Maybe there was always this assumption that when all that stuff goes away, naturally we'll want to do the same things. And sometimes people realize, no, that's not true at all. People have a different idea of how they want to spend their downtime or even just their twilight years in general. And so I know that to be an issue that can cause conflicts. I would guess the division of household labors would, labor would be another. Anything that comes to mind for you? Well, we know that um, arguments about finances are big for married mm-hmm. couples, right? And that's something that really becomes more relevant when you live together than when you, when you don't. So even things like, are we going to pick an apartment where the rent is higher and maybe it's a little bit nicer or what neighborhood, like just things like that. Um, it starts there. And then I think it just continues to like, how much do we spend on food? How much do we spend on entertainment? Like all of these things, you know, another thing I wanted to throw in, you, you reminded me of, of it with something you said was there's this really interesting article a couple of years ago about older couples in Japan where the man had had a very demanding job working many hours and now he retires and the wife just can't stand having him at home and all these Japanese women are getting divorced because the guy is getting on their nerves right and it was bearable when he was out of the house doing his thing and like you know I don't know what exactly these men were doing I don't know if they were acting like they were still in a corporation and were treating the women that way or whatever it was these women had built a an existence that was actually quite independent mm-hmm. from the one of their husbands and now all of a sudden I, I suspect the husband was probably more demanding and more high needs now that he was home especially if he had more traditional views um than you know you or I might have today so that that was like a real phenomenon and that was really interesting and, and kind of sad it's like wow now that you have all this time together now you realize you really don't like each other right yeah, yeah. so I mean there's a lot to consider yeah. but I thought the the title of the article was so apt a lot of roses, some thorns, you know, there are some things that don't sound so great or that potentially may not be things, negative things that may occur in higher proportions in the 60s to end of life age ranges. But there's also lots to be said for the lessons learned over a lifetime and how comfortable somebody feels within themselves. They come into themselves. I mean, I I was really pleased to read that it was largely a positive, optimistic kind of piece of, uh, about what dating could be like in in that 
stage of life. And in those stages, I mean, let's also not act like 60 to 100 is all the same stage. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's better than what people fear when they think about, oh, no, if I don't find somebody now in my 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, does that mean I'm doomed to a life by myself for forever? First of all, it may not be the worst thing, as we talked about with some of the downsides that people discover partnering later in life. Um, but also, there there are plenty of opportunities to find somebody who may be a, a good match for you, too. I thought it was a hopeful article. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, you know, there is just there's just a lot of there's a lot more freedom in some ways at that stage of life, like especially assuming your health is still okay-ish, right? Because you just don't have the responsibilities for young children or of building a career or any of those things. So, you know, I think for some people it's liberating. I, again, I do think that the gender ratio issue does cause some difficulties that were not necessarily fully explored in the article, you know, um, and, and you do see like, women even women in their 50s like really complaining about the pool of men that they're finding on the apps but as a general phenomenon and and leaving open the door to the possibility for growth where yeah maybe some men get divorced and they realize they did something wrong and maybe they do read some self-help books and go to therapy and work on themselves so uh, you just never know people are in flux right and like most people are not a lost cause and somebody who was maybe not a great spouse in their 30s could be a great spouse in their, in their 60s they're willing to put the work in and find somebody who's truly compatible for them i think so If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at swipestrangersoncoffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for his podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.